This is episode two of Sysadmin's Trivia. Well, episode one, technically, if you're counting from zero, like all good Sysadmin should. Up tonight, we'd like to take a couple seconds to talk about our, our recording rigs, type of hardware we use, other software. We've got a quick security review for Heartbleed, Shellshock, Ghost, a couple other ones that didn't quite make the big news. And we've also seen something in the news lately about PGP and GPG, and we'd like to talk a little bit about that as well. So to start up on my rig, and we do have this in the bio page as well, so if you'd like to see specifics, you know, see pictures of what the equipment is, get an idea of price range, shop for yourself, you know, order it for yourself, we do have that up on our bio page with links. So first and foremost, we do, this is our first time recording in Audacity directly. Uh, we use Mumble to communicate with each other and get an idea of of what the other person is saying, which is probably pretty important considering we're in remote locations. But we, uh, we're, we're trying to record in Audacity and then we, you know, send our local file to whoever's editing, um, which is probably going to end up being me until we get a, a dedicated editor. So if you're interested in doing some sound engineering for us, don't hesitate to contact us. Sysadministrivia.com slash contact.php. I use Arch Linux 64 bit multi-lib. Um, this is our second time recording this episode, by the way, because, uh, last night when we tried to do it first round, there were, are, now, Jathan, are we decided on what it actually was? Yeah, so I still live in the dorms at CU Boulder because I have a scholarship that pretty much keeps me in the dorms, so, um, I have a suite that's connected to another room by a bathroom, and... My neighbors basically were just listening to some pretty loud music, I'm I'm thinking. But it's fun for me to make fun of them and pretend that it was other things that were actually happening. But I'm pretty sure it was just music. Oh, I've taken to calling it body bongos. I mean, I'm fine with that. I <laughs> would love to share that with them as well. Fair enough. Um, maybe that'll encourage them to maybe be a little bit more quiet. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, they're not like assholes. They're not loud all the time. It's generally pretty quiet, so I don't oh, complain okay. too much. That's, yeah, that's that's a little bit better then. And, uh, like I said, I do that on Arch Linux, 64-bit multi-lib. My, my co-worker, peer, bot, semi-quasi-boss, I guess, at work, calls it, uh, pronounces it lib, like G-lib, C-M-L-T-lib. And, and I, you know, we were talking about this last night. I can't, I can't get down with that. It's just, it weirds me out when I, when I hear that. It's lib, lib. Same, you know what? Same with like GIF versus GIF. It's GIF. It'll always be GIF. Ooh, I say GIF. Ugh. like I I know that's what the creators say it's supposed to be, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say the creators are wrong. <laughs> first of all, like no, it's an acronym for, and the first word is graphics. You don't say graphics. You say graphics. I say so graphics. It's GIF. You don't know. You how do I not. Talk. You do not say graphics. Is there an uh, like any point in time when we've been talking since this podcast started that I said the word graphics? Just now. Yeah, but that's because I was saying <laughs> graphics, but I mean, aside from that, I did I didn't talk about graphics, so you didn't hear me say graphics, but I well, you know what? Like I I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. We need to move Moving on. on. Moving on. Um so we're uh recording on on I'm recording on sixty four bit Arch Linux with on a uh Asus Sabretooth Z seven seven motherboard. A little bit dated, but it's it's still a pretty great motherboard. 
uh, an Intel Core i7-3770K. Um, I don't even think that's on the market anymore, but it's still a great chip. You know, it's it's pretty uh, pretty high-powered. I have two kits, two sets of the uh, Corsair Vengeance 16-gigabyte 16 dual-channel DDR3 for a total of 32 gigs. I, I do a lot of, like, virtualization on this box, and I like providing, you know, dedicated RAM for those VMs. I use KVM, you know, so it's it's definitely the way to go. Because you don't, you don't want to overlap memory and then have things come crashing down around you. Um, so that's, that's why I have so much RAM. Um, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's super cheap these days. I remember seeing a Penny Arcade where like they were giving away RAM and cereal boxes, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a cheap resource these days. Like, why not, you know, just max out what your motherboard can support. Motherboard and, and operating system, I should say. Um... My mic is a Samsung CO1U. I think the C01U, rather. I should be more specific with that. Um, I believe that is discontinued, but it's it's a pretty great mic. It's a condenser mic. Has some issues under Linux where it, uh, it's a stereo mic, but the left channel is a lot louder than the right channel, so I usually just record in mono anyways. I use a Samsung PS01 pop screen, pop filter. And... I'm not Chinese, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but uh, I have an E Jiang shock mount and an E Jiang scissor boom. If we have any Chinese listeners, I doubt that we do, but if we if we do, uh, feel free to correct me on those. And I, I usually don a uh, Rosewill RHTS8206 headset. And I can't remember if the headset's discontinued or the mic's discontinued, uh, but it's one of them. What about you, Jathan? Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to tell you about all my desktop specs because my desktop is actually running Windows. Um, confession, I use Windows to game. I don't like to mess around with wine. If I want to sit down and play a video game, I want to sit down and play a video game. And actually, for most of my recording, I use my MacBook Pro, which is a 15-inch Retina display from mid-2012. Um, I do have a second hard drive in my Windows box that has Gen 2 on it still, but I haven't booted that up in a long time so chances are if i went to do <laughs> updates that would be uh you know at least a six week ordeal anyway um yep. i mean i use uh i have a computer at work that's given to me that runs red hat and all of our servers run red hat or centos so i have plenty of time using linux you know being a college student it's a little bit easier for me to get away using a macbook right now it's nice to sit down and use microsoft word Again, confession, I'm not like a diehard OpenOffice or LibreOffice user. Yeah, so to continue on that path, uh, MacBook has a 2.3 gigahertz i7, 8 gigs of RAM, Intel HD Graphics 4000, which I believe also has a gig of RAM. My mic is a Blue Yeti, which is just a USB mic, pretty standard. It's got a lot of different recording options, like in terms of, uh, so it's actually got like three receivers in it, in the head. And uh, so you can record in stereo, you can do like omnidirectional, you can do, um, oh gosh, what's the other one called that I don't remember the name of. Either way, uh, there's a link in, again, our bios, and you can click on it and it tells you all about that. So it's a really versatile mic. Um, I just have a really cheap Whisper Technic windscreen I got from Amazon. And then um, my headphones, again, nothing really special. I just use Klipsch S4A2 headphones, and they're like in-ear earbuds. 
Um, that's what I would typically use walking around campus or whatever. I always have them on me. Um, they're not noise canceling, but they're very noise isolating, so they work pretty well for recording. I can't hear anything else that's going on around me. Other than when I record, I do tend to have uh, my loop back turned on, so I can hear myself through my headphones. Oh, I'm not a fan of that. Uh, yeah, I like it because if there's any point in time like where I'm getting really excited and I hear myself peeking, I can turn my gain down or stop screaming. Oh, I'm just I'm I'm looking at at the equalizer right now. So oh. that's that's the one thing I like about actually. I I think we should stick with Audacity because I I'm kind of digging this. Like I I have a much better idea of of the volume range. Um, yeah, because well, I can, I can look at the peaks, you know, as we go. Yeah, that's true. I guess my peak so far for all of our recording then is like at negative twelve. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not watching your levels. Um, and I'm. I'm. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole like positive dB versus negative dB, like what that actually means. Yeah. I'm not a sound engineer, you know. No, we would love an audio editor. Like, if you know somebody or if you're interested, we will give you airtime. If you want it. If you want it. Yeah. Tell your friends. But yeah, yeah, we'll 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 work something out. Um or if you just want to do it to be nice and practice your I mean craft. we'll definitely credit you on the website as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. So moving along, um is that all your hardware you covered? You want Pretty to much. About? Yeah, I mean if anyone's really that curious about what I use to game on, uh, you can contact me by <laughs> any means and I'd be happy to share, but it's actually a little dated at this point. I've got to rebuild my system soon. Yeah, I've 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 been thinking about it, but, you know, after taxes, so <laughs> yeah. we'll, see, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I just uh, filed my taxes. I have to pay, like, a, a lot of money. Did I tell you how much I'm going to owe? No. I'm going to owe, like, nine grand. No way. That's after the deductions. Uh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. But, you know, I mean, it's it's my fault, too. Like, I didn't file quarterlies, so what you going to do? Yep, pretty much. So I'd like to move swiftly along to the security review. So we 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 heard a lot about Heartbleed, Shellshock, and Ghost in the news. Tech news, I guess. Maybe not so much in the, the public media. But um, Jaythine, you want to tell us what you know about uh, Heartbleed? Sure. So um, basically Heartbleed was an SSL vulnerability. Um, open SSL only, as far as I know. Um, and yep. it, the big thing with it is it affected a huge amount of systems and operating systems. Linux, BSD, OS X, Android, because it's kind of a, a Unix-like OS. I'm not sure about Windows. Maybe Windows. I thought I thought Android used Polar SSL, though. I mean, I, I may just be talking out my ass, but... Um, as far as I know, Android phones were affected by Heartbleed, so either Polar yes. SSL was also affected, or they use OpenSSL and you're wrong. Well, for... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it could be one of those. Or third option, you're wrong, and Android wasn't affected. Yes, I guess that's true. <laughs> that could be a thing. Yeah, so we'll we'll have to look into that. But I'm I'm almost positive Polar SSL and and other variants weren't affected. And I mentioned this in our scrapped recording last night. I believe Microsoft IIS was not affected, unless you were using OpenSSL with it. But I I think they use they provide their own their own SSL implementation. Right. Basically. SSL has this function that's like a heartbeat. So you basically reach out to SSL and it reaches back and gives you some kind of recognition that it's alive. Um, and in this case, you could kind of exploit that and, uh, you know, not only get the heartbeat back, but a bunch of other arbitrary information as well that was stored in memory. Um, and so this included potentially SSL keys, correct? 
Yeah, anything in memory um, in order to basically serve SSL websites, you know, HTTPS websites. They need to store, so Apache Nginx uh, LightPPD, how, how how's that pronounced? Lighty. Yeah. Lighty, it's pronounced Lighty. So, you know, like, they, they need to load the SSL keys in memory in order to properly de- decrypt and encrypt traffic. So, since that's stored in memory, that could be accessed. So, they could be using a flaw within SSL to get your actual SSL key in a roundabout way. I mean, there are limitations, though. You you would have to have heart beating turned on. And granted, like, I I think most implementations did have it turned on. Well, it you can be to... pretty useful. Yeah, yeah. If I mean, you're not it's... trying to exploit it. Or if you are, <laughs> right. I guess. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of almost useless without... Oh, Jathan just sent me a message. It looks like it, it did, in fact, affect Android devices. Yep, definitely um, did. So they are running OpenSSL, most. Fit. Got it. Um, Thank you. So, where were we? Oh, right, Apache and Nginx and so forth. So, um, you know, the, the good news is you could only get it 64, I believe, in, in 64 kilobyte chunks at a time. Uh, the bad news is the attack was super easy to execute and there was no by default you know there's no sort of like rate limiting on that so you can just keep hammering hammering away and get 60 a bunch of 64 kilobyte chunks and then just piece them together you know uh and there's a lot of like data reconstruction programs that can even do that automatically for you so that's a big problem it's like if not for your ssl key you know there's there's still plenty of other things running in memory that are super sensitive. Like, if you run an encrypted hard drive, the keys to that are stored in memory. The, the keyed session. Uh, even, like, uh, PHP sessions, you know, some of that information can be stored in RAM. So all sorts of different problems with that. And uh, that's that's why that was such a big deal. That and it was multi-platform and uh, really hard to detect when it first came out. But, I mean, I, I'd say at this point, hopefully everybody's patched. Yeah, I think by now it's it's pretty taken care of. The only thing is, um, if you have an Android device that is no longer being updated by a carrier, um, you might still be vulnerable. And so there's right. actually, uh, the other thing I found while I was just Googling real quick, there's actually a utility on the Google Play Store that you can download, and it'll tell you if your phone is vulnerable or not. Oh, that's really cool. Um, yeah. Can you can you get that link to me so I can put it in the show notes? Yeah, definitely. Cool. So we'll we'll have that in our show notes for you. Additionally... I believe CyanogenMod backports security releases. They may. I mean, a lot of custom ROMs probably were patched no matter what. Yeah, and I know I know CyanogenMod's got a, a much bigger... I'm, I'm, I'm still saying it right, correctly? Yes. Okay, okay. Um, so I, I know that they do have a, a higher focus on security and, and um, things like that. I mean, it's it's got, like, encryption enabled by default right out of the box and all sorts of great things like that, so... Definitely worth checking out. I haven't, you know, flashed my phone yet, but I've been seriously considering it. I'm just really not looking forward to packing everything up first. It's such a pain in the ass. But yeah, so check it out. Check it out. It, it looks like a very cool project. Um, so next on that is Shellshock. Shellshock was a fun one because it kept, it kept compounding, you know. I mean, I, I still, I said I was going to do this last night and I still haven't gotten around to it, but I'm going to go and look up the the end, you know, the entire CVE list of what Shellshock encompassed. You want to talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so uh, Shellshock was a bash vulnerability, and so a lot of uh, front-end services, so to say, actually use bash to process certain requests or run scripts upon, you know, a certain action. Um, and so an attacker could use these front-end services to gain escalation within bash, which obviously that is pretty bad and gives them control over more or less your whole system. Yeah, yeah. It. Uh... I mean, in short, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, yeah, it was a bunch of exploits centered around uh, privilege escalation. Yeah, and so, I mean, there was a list published, I mean, it's still published somewhere, um, mm-hmm. of specific services that were affected. And, um, of course, not every version of Bash was vulnerable, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think you were better off using an older version of Bash in this case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and we'll see that again with... Um... With Ghost. No, actually, with... Uh... I think that was with SSL as well, with Heartbleed. Uh, with Heartbleed, got it. Yeah, so you know it's 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 a certain change introduced and it weakens everything, so on and so forth. Cool. So it looks like he sent me the <laughs> Heartbleed detector as well. So we'll get in the, get that in the show notes. But Shellshock was was kind of I found it sensationalized. Because, you know, like, even with all the, all the attack vectors, and yeah, like, the, the biggest one was obviously a, a local, uh, privilege escalation attack. But if you're giving shell to people, like, you, you gotta be, you gotta be prepared for that kind of stuff. You gotta give shell to only people you trust. Or if you're like a shell provider, you gotta put it on a box that you can just wipe immediately, you know, at a moment's notice and then restore to a pristine state. I mean, that's, that's just the nature of shell. And I, I think that's the type of way you should approach Shell. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in every situation, I think security, I think if you're a systems administrator, security is always on your mind. It's one of the first things that you're thinking about. and Especially in this day and age, yeah. I mean, a lot you of... You should have the least number of accounts on your boxes that you can possibly have and still have everybody Absolutely. that needs to have access have access. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's always a great rule of thumb. And, and you know, like, it's it's commonly repeated that you should never do your work as root. You know, you should only um, you should create a normal user and then pseudo. But you know what? Sometimes that's the more insecure way, you know? Sometimes, so it, it sure. all Yeah, yeah. So it all, it all depends on the circumstances. So make sure you know the application of your box and all that. Well, and of course you run into, you know, if you have physical access to a box or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you have physical access to a box, it's usually game over. Well, I mean, in a lot of cases at least where I work, we have some boxes that, you know, you can't shell into because we are mm-hmm. able to get physical access. So the only way to log in as root is physically walking downstairs and plugging into the box and being like, okay, I'm going to log in here. Oh, yeah, you can do that with Etsy security. Right. And in some cases, I mean, if you're able to do that, by all means, that's what you Oh, yeah, do. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if that's, um, if you if you have the, the means to do that, either with like IP KVM or something, um, definitely the way to go definitely so the the way it essentially worked from my understanding you know the way it was executed was that uh, it was similar to a fork bomb and, and i i talked a little bit about what a fork bomb was last night with jathan so it's uh it's basically a string of symbols you send to the shell and they're interpreted as certain commands or uh, ways to alter the running command and in a fork bomb instance um you've got you know, command A or command zero, whatever you want to call it, and and you run it, and then it'll immediately split itself into two identical processes under that. So you've got A1 and A2, and then they execute the same thing on their own. 
So now you've got B1, B2, B3, and B4. And then you've got, you know, C1, C2, C3, C4, C5, you know, so on, so on, so forth. Uh, and it, it just cripples the box. This is why, like, things like U-Limit were uh, implemented and, and written, you know, to avoid a shell from toppling over an entire box. Now, Shellshock is different from that in that it doesn't really, you know, it, it doesn't fill up the memory stack. Uh, instead, it just tricks the shell into accessing, I, I believe, granting a privilege set that you don't normally have access to. Right. Um, That's the way I understood it. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't read a lot of the the technical details about it yet. I'd be I'd be interested in it. Um. So if anyone has some good docs on it, I'd love to read them. Well, but, I mean, even if you were using like I don't know a client or like a web server, I guess there weren't really any that were affected in this case, were there? Yeah, yeah. And and we do have a list here of of the actual uh situation where you'd be vulnerable. So, but I mean, local, even if you got access just to the user of that service or that process, you could still do some damage and screw up that process, which. In and oh no, could no be a problem. You can if you as long as you have any shell access, shell shock would run. So like you you could still get root no matter what. Got it. Um and that that's that in itself is a big deal. But I mean the the list of prerequisites for this the type of thing, you know, is, is just stupid. So like local shell, duh. Or bash CGI scripts, which again, duh, like why would why? You know, there's no reason to run bash CGIs ever. And and I said this last night, the only thing maybe more dangerous than a bash CGI would be a PHP CGI uh with form input without validation running as root. You know, that that's like the only thing I can think of that'd be worse than a bash CGI. I'm sure somebody's gonna comment on that and be like, No, there's there's this case. It's like, no, we're we're looking at this from a top level here. That's pretty bad if you're running a bash CGI. <laughs> Stop being lazy. Open SSH's force command, which, uh, again, you know, like, why are you handing out SSH access to people that you aren't auditing? I, it does have a, a lot of good uses, though. Like, you can force rsync, uh, rsync only access with that. But, you know, again, like, you gotta, you gotta be on top of that stuff. So that's, if anything, I would say that is probably the most valid concern for, for your administrators is that force command implementation. Yeah, and that's something that I actually use for uh, FTP purposes. Yeah, yeah. FTP? SFTP. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. DHCP, so if you've got a malignant DHCP server, you can craft certain uh, response packets to clients. Um, and if they happen to be running, you know, a bash post connect st- uh, script, you know, it, it would it would worm its way into that and, and execute. Um, but again, that's that's pretty stupid. So so please turn off your, your post-connect scripts. All you need to do from DHCP, DHCP server is get a lease. That's it. You know, you don't need to do any fancy stuff. It's it's just, it's it's a weakness at that point. And, you know, if, if a malignant operator is, is at your DHCP server, you're already hosed, you know. And they don't even need to be, like direct access to it. There's still like art poisoning and things like that. So um just watch your DHCPs. That's it. QML processing. So QML was vulnerable to shell shock, but QML's been dead for what, more than five years, I think now. Twelve years maybe? Longer? Yeah, it's 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 been dead for a long while, I know that. And it's really it's horrible. <laughs> you know, like it's it hasn't been getting patches and things like that. So I'm it's no surprise it's vulnerable. 
you should be using Postfix, or at the very least, send mail. Uh, but but please, for your sanity and for mail administrators everywhere else, please use Postfix, not send mail. <laughs> um, and the the last one that was vulnerable was the IBM HMC restricted shell. Um, but you you shouldn't be giving out HMC anyways. You know, I mean, that's from what I understand, that was like DRAC access, which is which you know, like that's basically like a, a remote hardware control. And like, if you have that in the first place, like there's <laughs> that's that's something that should be locked down to a VLAN at most and accessed only via VPN if you have to do it remotely. I agree. You know, and and there's uh, let's see. I think that yeah, that's it. That's the those are the the only known attack vectors from what I I saw initially. So yeah, I mean, big deal, sure. Um, brute privileges are always a bad thing to to grant unwillingly. I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> but you know, it wasn't such a big deal that it was like the the problem that it was made out to be. Uh, yeah, and it was an easy fix. I mean, you didn't have to reboot to to patch it or anything else. Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's bash. You just had you know, to restart you have... your bash sessions. Yeah, yeah, have everyone log out, done. But Ghost. Ghost was the headache for me uh, uh, bringing yeah. in 2015. Yeah. Definitely true. Um, so Ghost was a... So glibc, again, glibc, not glibc. Uh, <laughs> glibc was... Uh, it's it's basically the core of the, the Linux user land. Right, right? it's like the I, I, standard I say... C library. Yeah, I should Linux. say the I should say the GNU user land, not the Linux user land, because Linux is the kernel. <laughs> uh, I know somebody's gonna gonna yell at me if I don't preface that, you know. Um, but yeah, so it's it's like the Windows equivalent would be I, I don't know I, I don't know Windows internals as as good as I used to, but it'd be like Win32.dll, you know, it, it's core core operating system stuff. If you host glibc, you better hope you have a backup. Because you're going to be booting to a live CD and fixing it. Otherwise, your entire system's hosed and you need to reinstall. You know, yeah. like, that's... It's core. It's very, very integral to the system. Um, so there was a, a bug in that with a get host by name function. Basically, it's just a, you know, a standard DNS to IP address resol- uh, resolution function. And it it did this funny thing where if you send a certain length of uh, an address to look up with... You know, crafted in a certain way, like a special character in this place and that place. You basically had to exceed the allotted memory for the request. Yeah. Yeah, you got a buffer overflow. And then you, you whoopsied into like a, a position where you could, you know, do all sorts of fun stuff. Because, you know, again, like glibc is, is typically accessed via root level stuff. So you can, you can do all sorts of really nasty stuff if, if you get access through that, that buffer overflow. And another problem with that was, okay, you know, like, so there, there was a, a patch for it really quickly. Like, kudos to, to Linux for that, because stuff always gets patched really quickly, but you had to reboot for it, to, for it to take effect, because it's, it's glibc, you know, so not a lot of systems were able to be rebooted right away, so they were vulnerable for quite some time. Right. Which was the big issue. Big issue. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the good, the, the upside of that is like, some of the, not every, web service was was vulnerable so like i think there were being there, i think there was some confu- confusion about open ssh whether it was vulnerable or not i th- I think it's only vulnerable if you have used dns enabled in your sshd config um right uh what else 
Squid wasn't vulnerable. Uh, I think Nginx wasn't. I can't remember if Apache was. I don't remember hearing anything about any of the major web servers. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, by and large, it was okay. But it's still a, a very big deal. And it, it worked locally, too, you know. You could craft a, a address lookup locally and or remotely, uh, depending on the service running. And, yeah, right. so, I mean, it was a big deal. And it was a problem. But, I mean, again, like... Oh, it was definitely a big deal. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, that's... I, I'd say the aftermath and the, uh, you know, the fixing procedure for it was, was the biggest problem with it. I don't know. Um... <laughs> I was expecting you to to either agree or disagree with me there, and you're just silent. Well, I mean, I do agree, fortunately or unfortunately, since I don't work full-time right now because uh, it's during right, school here. Right. I didn't really have to deal with it. Yeah, you, you're lucky. And the other thing is, is on my VPS, I run Arch, so I still didn't have to deal with it because it wasn't affected. Well, it, it was. I mean, but it's a rolling release, so chances are you already had a, a version. Yeah, it, so it only affected older versions of G, glibc. Um, right. So yeah, but I was already past that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As was I. Um, so you know, we didn't we didn't have to reboot. But that's that, that is one of the the advantages of rolling release. So you know that that wasn't so big a problem for our users at least. But you know, it was still a problem in the professional world where everybody uses Red Hat or. Uh, Chilipsy or uh, CentOS, and then the the last two uh, that didn't get so much news coverage. So FreeBSD uh, had a bug yeah. in its random number random number generator. And again, I'm I'm still tripping over that phrase. Um, <laughs> I I asked you last night, and you didn't seem to remember, but there was a bug about five, six, seven years. It was a while back. I, I want to say we should have looked this up. We should have. We, we should have knowing knowing that we wanted to mention it i'm sure anybody who is in the professional world remembers it because it was a very big deal so at one point a debian developer and this is only for debian and, and debian forks so ubuntu was affected as well and so on and so forth but upstream you know it, it was fine i was using gentoo at the time so i wasn't worried but uh a debian developer was trying to get the ssh key generation algorithm to work right under Valgrind, which is uh, Valgrind? Valgrind. Not sure. Okay, not sure how it's pronounced. Have I just know it's a debugger. Um, it's like a debugger, and it checks for like optimized routines, and uh, it's it's pretty cool. I haven't used it, but I've seen what it can, like the improvements it can make to code, and it, it looks pretty awesome. Anyways, they were trying to get it to compile, you know, without Valgrind complaining, and it was tripping up on this certain function. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to comment it out. Turns out that was it was like the seed function uh for the uh random num random number generator for the key generation algorithm on De under Debian. So, you know, your uh your private keys were super easy to basically brute force. You know, we're talking like a matter of like 7 to 12 hours on consumer affordable hardware, which is a big deal and it led to the SSL blacklist and all sorts of other stuff. So that was a big deal. Luckily, you know, as soon as it was discovered, there was a patch right away. The Debian developer, you know, the poor guy. Like, I feel bad for him, but at the same time, he had to have had it coming. Like, you don't just you don't just disable a function because it doesn't work. You fix it, you know. But he he got a lot of flack, and poor guy's probably traumatized for life now. the The same thing with FreeBSD basically happened. As of oh, let me pull up the exact exact date here. As of February eighteenth, two thousand fifteen, the random number generator in the FreeBSD current kernel was broken. 
and and pretty bad from what I was reading. You know, it, it was not calling random dev init reader, so it was not returning decent random data. So it sounds like basically more or less the same thing. Again, a problem with seeding. Except in this case, it was the kernel, you know. So in Debian's case, you just had to regenerate your key and, you know, update your keys everywhere, and then you'd be done. No big deal. Right. Problem with this was you need a reboot. There was a patch to their credit, you know, but you, you did have to upgrade the entire kernel and then reboot. And I, I, I'm not going to lie. I took a little bit of, of joy in this because, you know, FreeBSD users always complain about how insecure Linux is and all that and stuff. And I'm like, here, you have a broken function in your kernel that's been there for, uh, what is it? Last four months. You know, it's been present for the last four months. So that's, that's kind of a big deal. You know, it's like they finally got what was coming to them. And this isn't the first time FreeBSD's been vulnerable to something as, like this um, as well. You know, there have been plenty of vulnerabilities for FreeBSD. It's just hipsters who <laughs> who think that, you know, they're they're fine. I think the, the best track record out of all of the, the modern operating systems might be OpenBSD. But, I mean, again, um, but again, like, they're... They don't have a perfect track record either. They got a pretty darn good track record, but they don't, they're not perfect. And I think at the end of the day, we would all do well to learn that there is no such thing as a perfect and completely invulnerable operating system. You know, uh, it's just a fact of life. And that's really the best takeaway is, you know, nobody should look at their own systems and be like, well, I'm not vulnerable because I'm running this distro or, you know, I'm running BSD or whatever. Yeah. In any case, you should treat yourself as vulnerable and take all the precautionary steps that you can to make yourself not as vulnerable. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm not worried about, like, Sasser or, or whatever the, the hot <laughs> Windows virus is now, you know, for instance. Yeah, I remember that. I'm not worried about that because, I again, you know, Linux, so it, it wouldn't run. It's not a relevant vulnerability. That doesn't necessarily mean I wouldn't feel effects from Sasser. You know, I mean, it could definitely DOS my Linux machines or so on and so forth. Uh, I could un, unknowingly be distributing it to, to clients, you know. But you've, you've still got other things to worry about with Linux, you know, like rootkits and the vulnerabilities we just mentioned and, you know, BSD users, same thing, you know. So it's it's nobody's guaranteed. And then the the last one for this little section is, and this is... Oh, this, man, this one's exciting. I like this. This is a good one. So I, I was looking around and I found an interesting article about... Someone who was basically just doing some some data analysis on Shodan, which is which is like a, a, a it's like Google, but for metadata, headers, uh, types of web servers running, SSH fingerprint, you know, SSH host key fingerprints, things like that. And they they came across an interesting thing where they found a bunch of devices using duplicate SSH host keys. And the, uh, for instance, and, and we'll link to this in the show notes, one specific fingerprint yielded 250,000 instances in the wild. So that means somewhere there's some hardware production company that is selling units with pre-configured host keys. Let me just sink that, let, let, let that sink in for a second. If you don't know why this is a big deal, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> So one of the strengths of SSH, and I should notice that, you know, like, to my knowledge, most of these are drop air, which is like an embedded version of OpenSSH. Maybe it's a fork. I, I can't remember if it's a completely different code base or not, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's still on the, the producer's end, you know, the production end. So SSH, one of its strengths is preventing man in the middle attacks. 
you know, you uh, you have box A and you've got box B. Box A is the good box. Box B is a, a similar box planted by an attacker to run a malicious, let's say, a malicious login instance where they want to capture passwords to box A. They could easily, like, you know, like, ARP redirect or whatever uh, to box A. There's, there's a dozen different ways of doing this. But unless they have actual access to box A's private host key, and, you know, you've connected to uh, box A's host before, you know, assuming that you're actually paying attention to host keys, as you well should, but we all know that many of us do not, unfortunately. So, you know, you're, you're confirming it first time you connect, and you're watching it every time after that, that when you connect. If box B tries... Well, and the nice thing is, the nice thing is most boxes, if you're connecting and the host key doesn't match up, it will scream at you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Large letters. By by watching it, you don't have to actively check it every time, like number for right. number, does this yeah. match up. I mean, most important is that first time that you're confirming you've got the correct box. So that's that's all well and good. And and that that giant warning, I'm sure we've all seen it. Uh, depending on whether you have strict mode enabled or not, it'll either refuse you to connect or uh, let, or strict host key checking rather. Um, it'll re- refuse your connection uh, for your own safety, or um, you know, ask like, do you want to basically overwrite the key or add add a second host key or whatever? So normally, you know, either way, you still get that flag, but that's because Box B doesn't have the same private host key that Box A has. In this instance, all you'd have to do is identify what product box A was, go to the store, buy another one, or, you know, contact the vendor. They, they don't really care who they're selling to most of the time because they just want money. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's a business, whatever. So go to the store, get get an, another version of product A, do your redirection attacks, a DNS poisoning, ARP spoofing, however you want to do it, you know, depending on the vector and the, and the context it's in. Since it has the same host key, they're, they're not going to be alerted that this is a different server, you know, and now you've got what a, what classically is known as a man in the middle attack. You're you're placing your malignant box in the in between the client and the desired target. Exactly. Yeah. So that was that's a, a pretty funny instance. Um, like I said, we'll have a link to the the report. It's actually on the Shodan blog, so that was pretty cool. So that was that was a, a little bit concerning. Um, to my knowledge, OpenWRT is not vulnerable to that weakness because they generate fresh host keys on every new installation as yeah and that's what should happen if you buy a device and take it home if you buy a router you take it home the first time you plug it in and turn it on it should generate a key assuming it runs ssh yeah yes it should generate its own key yeah or it should at least have some kind of configuration option where you can you can generate a new key for it on the router or whatever it is no i'm not even comfortable with that you know because nobody's going to do that I, you and I would. But well, all right, you and I would. I mean, but but I mean, you get a router today, and there's like an initial setup that's that's part of it. I think part of it should explain to you, hey, you know, this router has SSH functionality. We're going to go ahead now and generate a host key for this device. Generate some random data. Why would that be so hard? I don't. Well, so host keys generally, you don't even need a lot of um, random data input. You know. Exactly. Yeah. So you just use you can use network I/O even. You know, um, some might argue it's a little bit too predictable. You know, I like hash and, and salt it with other stuff. You know, like it's it's not a big deal. It's random enough, and that's the point. Or you know what? Even prompt them. Do you know what SSH is? If not, we'll disable it. You know, like you know, there's options there. Um, but they took the lazy route, left it enabled, and used the same host key on a bunch of a bunch of their 
platforms, a bunch of their products, and weakened security everywhere in one fell swoop. Granted, a lot of it's also maybe the the local sysadmin's uh, fault for not making it a habit for generating host keys, but I think it's under common assumption that the host keys would be randomly generated silently on first boot. Yeah, I would think so. And and I would too. I would expect that. And the fact that they didn't live up to that is, is very silly. I want to find out some more information on this. I want to know what vendors are doing this. If any of you look through the show notes, find the page we link to, look at the sample fingerprint, and if it matches up to the SSH fingerprint you're getting on your, on one of your devices, please tell us what that, what device that is, because I'm very curious to know. You know, I wonder if, uh, like, some cable and telecom companies, they give you a router with, um, like, if you have internet with them, I wonder if any of them are vulnerable. I feel like that number would be a lot larger than 250,000 then. But, I mean, that's just 250,000 that, that people are aware of. And, well, that specific fingerprint, too. So maybe, maybe. But, I mean, I, I don't think I've personally seen any where that's the case. But, you know, time, time will tell. Hopefully we'll, we'll have a listener who can identify that hardware for us. And last on the list is uh, PGP, GPG, GNU, PG, whatever. I wanted to talk a little bit about why it hasn't been adopted wide scale yet. Jathan and I talked about this a while back. I, I, I think maybe like four months ago, six months ago, somewhere around there. Yeah, it wasn't actually that long ago, but it was within the last year for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somewhere in that time period. And it's a it's a really handy utility. Jathan has confessed that he's never used it. I use it to regularly sign all my emails. You know, it's a way of saying, this email is definitely coming from me. My mail account isn't hacked. You know, it's it's a way of proving your identity online. You know, it's a digital signature at the end of the day. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot of other people know exactly how to read that signature. So it, it's kind of not so effective in that case. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in one second. You can also use it to en- encrypt data or your emails or whatever, you know. And I think in this this uh, day and age, that's a pretty important thing. Not just with the U.S., but globally. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's something that made, uh, that made like, the Snowden leaks were pretty... Uh, I, th- I think they were facilitated with, with GPG. Yes. As far as I know, they definitely were. But also, um, what was the OS that Snowden used for the Linux distro? Um, I think Tails. Oh, yeah, that's what it which, is. Which Tails. did just recently have a, a new release. Yeah, I've got that, actually. I haven't checked it out yet. I mean, I, I've got my own stuff. I, I custom brew for that kind of stuff. So we, we can talk more about that in our later episode. Uh, we've got another episode coming up where we want to talk about live distros. So we'll talk about it then. So it's it's probably hasn't been adopted because it's admittedly kind of hard to use. Yeah, well, and plain and simple, the reason I don't use GPG is because I use Gmail. And with the web client, it's not very easy to encrypt and decrypt or sign emails. And uh, number two, as you pointed out last night, it's if you're using a web client to access your email, it's kind of pointless anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because at that point, it's like if someone wants to get at your stuff, someone's going to get at your stuff. True. I mean, yeah, and and web... A web browser is probably the worst idea I can think of uh, to implement GPG in, but, you know, whatever. But uh, that brings us to something on Slashdot. Again, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Moxie Marlinspike is, uh, he wrote SSL Strip, which is basically, you know, a, a script to audit. It's basically a man-in-the-middle SSL script. Um, you can plug the squid and so forth. But it's, it's used for 
useful for auditing and things like that. He's he's done a lot of other stuff. He works on Open Whisper is his big project right now. It's like an end-to-end encryption for mobile phones. Check it out. It looks pretty cool. So it's a guy who, with fair reason, knows his, knows his shit. But he, he's gone on the record saying, you know, GPG is like 15 or 20 years old and, and um, you know, it's it's run its course and it, it's not needed anymore and so on and so forth. And, you know, my knee-jerk reaction is kind of like, that's, that's not true. You know, there's definitely a need for it. It's a very powerful piece of software, you know. It handles streams. It handles files. It handles email. It's got all sorts of handy things about it. It's just not in common use and that's you know people i think just don't really care enough to use it to get past that learning curve and there aren't really any good guis for it so i think at that point he's he's right in a way you know he's he's correct well in a way. yeah and i mean plus uh you know the number of people working on mobile phones and tablets today makes it even worse yeah yeah and in terms of having a way to use it that's easy and simple and time efficient yeah there is there is a pretty handy one uh apg i think it's called for android a gpg yeah for android and there there might be one for ios too apg was an older gpg implementation by the way as well so that it's it's not that it's the other other thing it's possible it's just not easy and i think that's the problem so i I don't uh, i don't agree with them that it's not relevant anymore but i definitely think it's I think it's needed. Yeah. I think it just has to be done a different way such that it's more accessible and easy to use for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Hands down. Yeah. Yep. I, I totally agree with that statement. So we're now uh, a fair bit in. I think we'll uh, we'll call it quits for, the, for this time. This is Brent. I'm Jonathan. This is Sysadministria. See you next time.